0: Let's talk about, let's have some uh, pandemonium, maybe. How many panda puns do you have ready to go?
1: I know that they flew on the Panda Express on the way back to China. That's the only one I got.
0: That's not
1: not (laughs) Pandemonium. (laughs) That reminds me, I want to start a restaurant in Williamsburg called Pastabilities. That's good. Pasta, pastabilities. I would would eat there. Yeah. Yeah. We'd have all kinds of different pastas, gluten-free, for folly. It'd be great. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> your portfolio gluten-free <laughs> like usually those are different <laughs> categories
1: of things but you know <laughs> but there's endless possibilities
0: yeah i like it hi everyone welcome back to cheap talk my name is jeff kaplow i'm an associate professor of government here at william and mary and joining me as always is my esteemed colleague marcus holmes hello marcus
1: hi jeffrey how you doing it's pandemonium out there <laughs>
0: It's, it's pandemonium that's actually too close to the mic don't, don't do that anymore <laughs> okay but <laughs> well, you told me to get all up in here i i do but you gotta like pick one because i uh i'm gonna have to oh, like normalize all this right. over the course of i'm it.
1: gonna try to i'm gonna try to maintain a reasonable distance from between my mouth and the and the microphone
0: yeah that's good well i'm okay. i'm uh i'm doing okay i'm a little little under the weather but you sound um, like it ready to ready to push through you know there's a lot going on in the world marcus
1: yep it's true
0: there's a continuing conflict between Israel and Hamas and the in Gaza. There was some really interesting stuff coming out of of Ukraine. It is we kind of hit a stalemate in the Ukraine conflict. And uh there was actually a quite remarkable interview with, with Ukraine's military commander kind of admitting that there's a stalemate and talking about what would be necessary to to get things moving again for Ukraine. And it's a kind of interview you don't often see. That's maybe worth talking about. Russia has revoked its ratification in a major nuclear treaty, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which I don't even know really what that means, revoking ratification. That might be something interesting to talk about. But mostly what I think we should talk about, we should put most of this aside for today and uh, talk a little bit about Panda diplomacy. This is something that was on our agenda a month ago. Um, when the Hamas terrorist attacks in Israel occurred, and we kind of set it aside, but I have been wanting to come back to it ever since. And this week, a couple days ago, the pandas left the Washington National Zoo. Uh, for those not familiar with this, the, this story—I don't know where you've where you've been living under a rock. This is all over the news. Maybe the most important story happening right now, aside from all the other things that are happening, uh, is the the fact that China has taken back its pandas that had been lent to the zoo. And, and I think for people who don't know the story here, the, the pan- all pandas that are in any zoos in the world are the property of the government of China. That is, they are being loaned to zoos all over the world with the idea that they're, they're on, a, on a contract and they'll be returned to China at some point. Um, and so that's happened before, but we're at a kind of a low point in, in the panda presence in the United States. So uh, the only remaining pandas are, are at the Atlanta, are in Atlanta right now. I think we have four um, in Atlanta. But all the other pandas in America have, have returned to China in recent, in recent months and years. And so this has led to a lot of people asking, what's going on here? Does this have to do with the kind of continuing deterioration of relations between the United States and China at kind of the governmental level? Has that now trickled down to zoos? Or is this uh, really a story about once endangered species that's now doing a little bit better? Um, And is there really a kind of non-political take on this that that, uh, does a better job explaining events? So I thought we could just get into it. Do you want to give us your overall panda take and then we can drill down into some of these these details?
1: Well, I mean, I think um, we can all agree – uh, hopefully, that pandas are adorable. Adorable. I mean, if you see a panda, there's, there's just something about the panda bear that, like, you just, it looks so fluffy and uh, sort of inviting and approachable, but it's a it's a bear. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing people, like, forget. I think it's, it's like, this is a, an animal that could destroy you, like, very quickly and easily, but it looks so <laughs> adorable. But they're, you know? they're like it's walking like,
0: stuffed animals.
1: They're like walking something. Yeah, they're great. It's similar. It's similar to like a koala bear. So if you've been to Australia and have had the privilege, as I have, of going to a koala bear uh, like place where you get to like pet koala bears, it's it's kind of like that. It's the like koala bears are smaller, um, but <laughs> yes. they're like a <laughs> similar cuteness, uh, similar sort of level of adorableness, and and you can get closer to the koala bear. So that's that's one sort of benefit. Fun
0: fact, Marcus: koalas yes. are not related in any way to pandas because koalas are not bears they are marsupials oh Oh.
1: just blew my mind i did not know that
0: yeah i know know. the the term koala bear is a misnomer they really are not bears
1: oh and what's a marsupial
0: marsupial is like a like a kangaroo like an animal that has a pouch where the young kind of grow in the pouch when until they're they're old enough to kind of live on their own
1: okay interesting so anyway so i i think um Pandas just by their very nature to most people. I mean, I imagine there's some people out there that don't find them cute and cuddly and all that, but I think most people, sort of around the world, even uh, find them adorable. And so for that's that's one of the reasons why I think the story has attracted so much attention. For those that have been to the Washington uh, DC National Zoo, it's it's one of the like, major attractions. It's, it's dare I say the sort of like main reason why people go to that zoo is to see these panda bears. Uh, and when they they are sort of being what's perceived as kind of taken away or like, you know, brought back to China, uh, the lease is over, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult to deal with because we're, we're used to being able to see these panda bears and it's sad to see them leave and go back, go back to China. So I think just as a, a sort of overall general reaction, a lot of, of people that live in the DC area, or even just like sort of everyday American who have been reading about these, uh, panda bears in the New York times or whatever, are maybe a little sad that they're, that they're going back now. If we think about, like, what this is all about, sort of at a, at a broader kind of, like, international relations uh, a level, there actually is some research on panda diplomacy. Um, panda diplomacy is kind of the idea of using the exchange or gift of or lease of pandas uh, by China to achieve different types of, of political goals, whether they be sort of, you know, uh, softening of relations or making, you know, China feel or be perceived as a little bit more sort of uh, approachable, like increasing its soft power. Um, Back in the old days, there was a lot of uh, sort of gift giving that occurred with pandas. So if you, if you go on the internet and do sort of deep dive into panda diplomacy, you'll see that this goes back to like the seventh and eighth centuries, China, uh, you know, basically using the panda bear as a gift to kind of like smooth over our relations or try to, to improve relations with another country. So there's, there's been quite a bit of work actually thinking about like the role of panda, uh, pandas more generally in, in their Chinese culture, but also panda diplomacy as a form of soft power or a form of kind of public diplomacy uh, for China. I think that the backdrop to that or the sort of idea behind that is very similar to other types of public diplomacy that we've discussed on this pod before, like sports diplomacy, uh, maybe digital diplomacy, like the use of social media accounts to kind of project a particular type of image. The idea here, I think, is simply by, you know, either giving pandas or leasing pandas to other countries people hopefully while walking through the zoo will associate the panda with China and then maybe have a better perception of China precisely because that, that panda bear is in the, is in the zoo. And the counterfactual is if the panda bear was not in the zoo, uh, then you wouldn't get the same sort of benefit. China would be still, you know, perceived a little bit worse because you're not getting that benefit from, from the panda. I think there's also other ways to, to kind of think about this. and, And that is the sort of, health of the animal itself and and the reason why uh, these particular pandas are going back to uh, China. I saw a lot of sort of discourse in, in in the New York Times had an article about this and other papers and and websites did as well, talking about how this is not just about politics. Like these are actual animals that, um, you know, should go back to their homes at some point, go, go to the the sort of refuge that they will be kind of living on and have access to like their retirement years and, and so on. So, like the idea that like we should potentially kind of hold on to these animals until they die, or hold on to them as, as long as we can, is a little bit sort of selfish and not respecting the animal, not respecting uh, the panda like living out its its last days in a in a nice place. So, I, I also want to sort of you know mention that this is not just about you know international relations and politics. These are actual animals that you know we should we should you know think about and and care for. Uh, And therefore, the fact that they have to go back and return to China is not necessarily just about politics, but also is about uh, the health of the animal itself.
0: Yeah. So I think you you touched on a number of things that we maybe we can drill down a little bit more into some of this. So, I mean, my my uh, furious reading about panda diplomacy over the last several hours has, has given me some 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 cool stories. So it turns out that like the pandas coming to America story begins with. Nixon's opening with China in the seventies, and apparently Pat Nixon, the first lady, was uh, at a state dinner with uh, China's premier and saw a tin of Chinese cigarettes that had the logo of giant pandas on it, and said, commented that they're they're cute, you know. And uh, so the Chinese official said, "Well, I'll give you some." Um, and so that's the kind of origins of pandas coming to coming to America. So there, al- there always was a kind of diplomatic link going back to kind of the first pandas to visit to to come to the Nat to the National Zoo the provision of pandas has always been tightly controlled by the the government of China and for a while i mean it has also been kind of a money maker for China right so these pandas are not free the current pandas or the pandas who just left the National Zoo were $500,000 per year for a pair Um, That's actually lower than the previous price of a million dollars per year for a pair of pandas, and there are a number of zoos around the world that are um, reaching contracts for these pandas. And so there is a a kind of money-making enterprise here that goes into, we think, we hope, uh, panda conservation and um, other kinds of causes that kind of help Um, support the pandas in China. And um, until very recently, pandas were endangered. And so it was kind of important to be conducting research on pandas all over the world, particularly on panda reproduction, um, to make sure that there's a future for the species. So there's been kind of this complicated relationship between China's government and then the entities that are actually kind of leasing the pandas to to these zoos. And then the kind of tap dancing that the zoos are doing in order to avoid making this seem like a political thing. Right. And I I think we should maybe start there. So the stories that are coming out about the end of the pandas in America right now, as these pandas go back to China, have kind of two different takes. So one set of takes, um, there are interviews with zoo officials and with conservationists and with folks who are involved with working with pandas. And they all say, well, look, pandas always go back to China at a certain age. These pandas have actually been in America for longer than we would have expected. And part of that is because the contract was up during the pandemic and, and then they extended it. And, and so it's not unusual for pandas to go back to China at this particular age. They're older and uh, young pandas always, are, always go back to China. And so this is just part, part, part of the way it's done and from the perspective of the zoo officials, there's nothing political here, or at least they're unwilling to say that there's something political here. And the National Zoo says they intend to ask for a new pair and they're going to continue working on, you know, they're optimistic that they will receive an uh, another set of pandas soon. But then you see other articles that are, <laughs> are like interviewing foreign policy types like us who are saying, oh, it's just like just the, the latest sign of the deterioration of relations between these countries. And China's playing hardball with its pandas and we're holding the pandas hostage. Uh, there's a line in one of these articles that like, you know, have, has the zoo, have zoo officials talk to the Biden administration about reaching out as part of uh, diplomacy to try to get more pandas. And the zoos are like, no, we haven't done that. Right. And and it's kind of hard to imagine that um we're gonna trade a lot of like something of strategic significance for a pair of pandas for the zoo. So like how far this panda diplomacy stuff goes is is uh I'm I'm not sure we can take it that far. But the question I have for you, Marcus, is is this really a story about diplomacy, or is this just a story about conservation and the relationship between Zoos and the China Wildlife Conservation Association.
1: <laughs> well, it's it's a little tricky. I, I have to admit, I'm not a, a zoologist. I'm not a conservationist. I don't. I, it's hard for me to evaluate the veracity of what the zoologists are saying. um I will say the timing is a little fishy, right? You know, it's it's sort of like a lot of these these articles are talking about the diplomacy side of things and the policy side of things, and pointing out that in previous sort of like episodes when this type of thing happens. There's often um, discourse out of China about some type of like other panda that will be sent eventually or like a timeline for like when there's going to be another exchange or like a, a, a the lease is going to be extended. It doesn't seem like any of that kind of stuff is happening now, right? So it's not just that the, the sort of lease is over and the pandas are going back to China. It's that there hasn't been this discussion of replacement pandas or an extension of the lease or anything like that, which leads people to think like maybe this is a reflection of the poor state of the relationship between the United States and, and China. I think it's with many things in, in political science, like this is a difficult one to kind of pin down. You know, we might know in, in the future at some point when things are declassified and we can get into the records of what the Chinese officials were thinking. Maybe they were having secret meetings and saying, this is how we're going to stock it to the Americans. We're going to take our pandas back. Maybe their calculus is a little bit more subtle. And they're saying, well, why should we, if for the Chinese perspective, why should we be having these panda exchanges with the United States? Why should we allow them to keep our pandas when they're treating us so poorly? So if you're Xi Jinping and you don't like the fact that the United States um, has been sort of acting against you uh, in your interests and again, in your perception, creating this kind of league of democracies, trying to sideline China and Russia and so forth, you might think to yourself, well, if they're going to do that, then I'm not going to do this what, what is ostensibly a symbolic kind of nice gesture of having these pandas you know, reside in the United States. I'm just going to take them back because clearly it's not working. So maybe the lesson that the Chinese are, are sort of learning from this is that if we thought the pandas were going to help to increase... Uh, the sort of you know friendliness of the U.S.-China relationship doesn't seem like it's working, so we might as well might as well pull them out. There's another piece to this though that we haven't discussed, which I think is actually kind of uh, interesting and somewhat amusing. Which are the sort of the, the economic uh, perspectives of this? So some people have said it's not really about diplomacy. It's not really about the health and the conservation of pandas. This is about uh, essentially China sort of decreasing the supply. Of panda distribution around around the globe, so that they can get more favorable, i.e., more money uh, terms when they send pandas to other other places. So the idea is like we we sort of limit the supply, uh, demand maybe you know goes up or stay static, but at least the supply is lower, and then we can get more favorable economic terms when we have another you know lease with another country that's not the United States or something along those lines. Again, hard to know if that's part of the calculus or not, but it does seem like there's a there's a sort of business aspect to pandas as well, that might be informing some of China's, you know, strategic calculus.
0: Okay, well, I don't know the answer to this either, of course. I'm not an expert in pandas or zoos. But I I also think that some of the people who are giving quotes for these articles also have no idea. I would agree. And so so what I want to say about this is that I feel like there's some China paranoia that happens Whenever something related to China is going on in the world, there are people out there who are just going to like, let's interpret this in the, in the most negative possible way, in the sense that like, this must be a, a decision by uh, no, no one less than Xi himself has decided that the pandas must be revoked from the National Zoo, right? And, and I, I, I mean, maybe, maybe that's right, but uh, I'm not sure we know that really. And, so I'm, and I'm not sure I would assume it. Um, so I, I think probably the there is some element of like the natural cycle of returning pandas to to China that happens to kind of correspond with a a time when relations are not great between these two countries. And maybe that's encouraging China not to offer new ones. I don't know. But it, it seems like there is for, for many people, the first thing they think of is, oh, of course, you know, why else would we not have pandas at the national zoo? but that there is poor relations between the two countries even though of course this is not the first time that there's been a, a a period with no pandas in the national zoo
1: yeah i mean i i think that's right i mean one one thing you can do if you wanted to approach this um sort of in a methodologically kind of sound manner you could look at the distribution of panda uh exchanges or panda leases that china is sending out and see what's correlated uh, with those distributions, so for example, I was looking o- online this morning when we were you know discussing the possibility of talking about panda diplomacy, and I saw a couple of, of studies so there's there's this one two thousand and thirteen um, study that we 'll put in the show notes, which basically looks at the correlation between um, the, basically the timing of china 's panda agreements and what that coincides with and It turns out that there's a correlation between the agreements that China makes with states like you know uh, Canada, France, and Australia and like uranium deals and contracts and things like that on the other hand, right? So, Oh, come on. You could do, you could do a very, you could do a very sort of broad brush (laughs) kind of like correlation and say, look, look, we have, we have evidence, not great evidence, but we have some evidence that at least there's a correlation. Now we're not saying that the Panda diplomacy is causing these contracts. We're not saying that.
0: Good Lord. Everything's correlated with something. This is, this is pushing it. That's true.
1: Okay. So that's number one. The other thing is that, uh, Panda exchanges with neighbors, Singapore, Malaysia, and Thailand are correlated with uh, free trade agreements and and free trade deals. So you might say maybe what 's happening here is that we get a free trade deal there 's a panda as as a sort of show of of uh, appreciation for that deal. Maybe the panda comes before the their discussion of the panda comes before the deal, and that makes the deal easier to sign, or something like that. Again, this is none of this is great evidence. Yeah,
0: or the, the, there's some better relations happening, and so these are both things that flow naturally from better relations.
1: Correct. That's also a possibility. And this is, the, and this is the problem that we have with the sports diplomacy and every you know basically former diplomacy as well. This is this is a problem. Um, there's a 2021 study that concluded that uh, the number of pandas bestowed strongly corresponded with a country's trade volume. With China. In other words, we are China is more likely to have uh, panda exchanges with countries with whom they have a lot of of trade. Again, you can interpret that many different ways, one of which being
0: does that also correspond with like richer countries, perhaps, which have a million dollars a year to spend on pandas?
1: Yeah. So the bottom line here is that empirically kind of (laughs) demonstrating that the exchange of pandas uh, is is causing anything is gonna be a, a stretch. And you can show Maybe that there's some correlations with, you know, bettering or worse relations, uh, but those are fraught with all kinds of different, you know, problems, including, you know, confounding variables and and all the rest of the the things that we talk about in social science. So I I think that the difficulty here is like we're kind of left with you know, like sort of anecdotes and uh, personal impressions. And that's why we see such different kind of views. People are privileging the zoologists, if they happen to be sort of into zoo animals and and know something about it. And people who are skeptical of China and view China's rise as threatening are obviously going to see in this, uh, you know, sort of like doom and gloom. It's sort of like a Rorschach test for how you think about the U.S. relationship with China.
0: I also am kind of struggling a little bit with the rationale for revoking pandas when relations are bad. Right. I mean, so I, I, I and I wouldn't put it past Chinese leadership to be like, you know what, that's it. We're bringing all the pandas back. We've had it. They pushed us too far this time. That, that's certainly possible. Right. But if, if you were a Chinese leader in charge of uh, panda diplomacy, might you think, OK, we should probably try to improve the public opinion of our country in this country that we're having some difficult relations with. And one basically free way to do that is send some pandas over there because that doesn't kind of cost us anything strategically, right? Like no one's going to think, oh, China made this concession by allowing pandas to go to the national zoo. So there's there's no cost to China from taking that step. But potentially, it, if if you believe in any of this stuff, which we should we should talk about whether whether we do. But um, if you believe in panda diplomacy or sports diplomacy or all of these um, blank dash diplomacy things that you study, then you would think that this is going to increase like the the view of the American population toward China. And wouldn't China want to do that in a situation where relations are not as good, so as to put pressure on the government to change its? relations with China to soften relations with China?
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, I, th- I think that this is, is sort of getting at what China's intention is uh, with making this move. I mean, wh- one possibility is if China believes that pandas can serve as like a goodwill gesture and help to improve the relationships in the United States and Japan, and Japan, the United States and China, and they're looking out and they're seeing the United States and what the, the actions that they're taking uh, again, as they perceive as sort of hostile and against them, then they might say, "Well, what what is the point of having the pandas there? We're supposed to promote better relations. We don't see any evidence that that's happening. We're going to take our <laughs> our pandas back, right?" So, I'm so sorry. Like,
0: so, so wait, let me stop you there. So they're, they're like, they're like, you know, relations have gone downhill with the United States. You know what the, the to blame for this? The pandas. (laughs) bring the pandas back. It's not the spy balloon, right? It's not it's not the providing military supplies to Russia in their, you know, illegal war on Ukraine. No, it's the pandas (laughs) to pull back the pandas. That's what you're telling me?
1: That's right. I think you can view (laughs) the return of the pandas as a subtle, sort of nonverbal, but potentially important diplomatic message. Signalling China's displeasure with the United States with the, their our policies, and instead of having to make like a big to do over it and, and come out and make a, a statement that's gonna you know probably uh, have a, a major effect potentially on us China relations, they can have a subtle message and the subtle message is, we don't like what you're doing. We're taking our pandas back. I, I, I don't think that that's actually the, the, completely, you know, uh, irrational for them to no, do. No, it's not if,
0: irrational. It's just that that yeah. message is so subtle that we're right now arguing about whether it exists. And <laughs> I think true. that that's that's potentially a problem for signaling theory. And and it, if if you believe in countries sending signals, one thing you might want from your signals is that people hear them. And it's not clear to me that that the message is getting through. When it comes to the the revocation yeah, like, of the pandas,
1: maybe, but we just we just talked about like all of these different you know foreign policy experts that are talking about how this is indicative of the you know worsening of U.S. China r- relations. It seems like the removal of the pandas is signaling something. Okay, it's signaling it's signaling a displeasure with what the United States is doing. The other signaling story, of course, I'm surprised you haven't brought this up. You know, China is not a democracy, certainly, but the domestic audience for China is still important for for leadership. Another signaling story that you could tell here is that basically internally what what you know China is trying to do here is show that they're willing to take steps to uh sort of encourage national pride and be like if the United States is not willing to uh work with us and they're they're you know taking actions that are against our national interests, we're willing to take a step of removing pandas from the United States and bring them bring them home. I could imagine in China for some audiences that would actually resonate you know it's like there's a lot of pride for the, the panda. It's part of the, the sort of national culture in China. It's part of their values. It's it's supposed to be like a goodwill gesture. And if their perception is that the United States is not living up to their bargain in terms of like the goodwill kind of exchange, then China taking the, the pandas back is is saying, again, in a subtle way – to the United States, we don't like what you're doing, and to the domestic constituencies, we're willing to to take steps against the United States to signal our displeasure with what they're doing, and that might, you know, sort of in some ways reinforce the leadership of of Xi Jinping.
0: Potentially. yeah, yeah. I actually really like that that argument. I was thinking before we started recording that that like I don't actually know this is one more area in which I'm ignorant about panda diplomacy, but I don't actually know how any of this is playing in China and the extent to which the chinese government is broadcasting this as a, a message of national pride like you know we're bringing our pandas back uh because of the the americans you know are bad or whatever i i don't i don't know how this is being uh how being being played in the in the state media and you know there are there are people out there who 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 could who could find that out this is a question that that has an answer um so uh, maybe some of our listeners who study this stuff can can send us a note and let us know what the what the Chinese side of the equation looks like.
1: I exactly. I would be very curious to, to know um, for your sort of average person living in Beijing who pays attention to you know the news kind of broadly and, and you know understands that that we have this relationship with China, the pandas have you know come to the United States. What do they think about this? You know, like what what are the what are the signals being sent from the domestic side? Uh, are they in favor of this? Are they supporting Xi in this? Are they fed up with the United States and saying you know no, we should. If if they're not going to you know up and up uh, hold their end of the goodwill side of this, we should we should not be doing it either. I, I don't know. It's a it's a great question. Um, the other thing is that there are. It's not like this is the only time that people have discussed uh, cases of China sort of pulling back uh, the pandas. Like there was during the the so called um, Sino Soviet split, right, where China and the Soviet Union you know basically had a falling out long, complicated history. There, too, there was the instances, I believe, um, some of the case studies I was looking at this morning, of China basically saying, we're taking back our uh, pandas because this signal of goodwill that we were sending to the Soviet Union after the split was not being reciprocated, and they basically said, we want to have our, our pandas back. So it's not unprecedented that China has, you know, during periods of, of what are perceived as relatively poor relations, basically used the pandas as a way, but maybe to signal that they're not happy uh, with the With the current status quo, and it then becomes like sort of a diplomatic you know tool of of sorts
0: okay so let's let 's assume that the, you know this is this is part of the signal, and that China sees the pandas as part of kind of its overall diplomatic relations with other countries. Can you walk me through how this is supposed to work? How is it that sending the pandas to the zoo leads to some benefit for china like what what is the what is the mechanism is it is it the public goodwill is there is there some other kind of way in which the pandas so they send the pandas and then something happens and then you know profit it's good for china right how, how, explain the middle part to me
1: uh it's a good question um, I think the middle part the sort of causal mechanism uh if you will is something like um because of pandas cuteness what we started with pandas are undeniably cute. Adorable. adorable they're adorable everybody agrees with them um the arrival of pandas typically uh is constitutes a sort of media event like when i the pandas in the washington national zoo are like a thing like people go there to see them you know it's like it's not it's not just like oh you happen to go to the zoo and like oh there's a panda no no like they're, they're advertised there's pictures of them in, in throughout dc uh, when a panda arrives at a US a US zoo, like it's a big deal. You know, there's coverage, there's media. Well coverage. and the births
0: of the, the, the when the baby pandas are born, that's like a yeah. major national event. Like exactly. I, I was like glued to the panda cam during during those years.
1: Okay. So then you have people looking at this cuteness and you're seeing these baby pandas and you're associating them.
0: Did you know, Marcus, that the pandas are like very, very small when they're born and when, um, the, the baby panda was born, we called him butter stick because it was the size of a stick of butter.
1: No. Is that true? Yeah. There's stick of butter when they're. Yeah. Sorry, please continue. (laughs) (laughs) You got me, you got me sort of sidetracked. Um, Right. So you're you're seeing all this positive uh, stuff. There's cuteness. You feel good. These are positive news stories. Uh, And I think the idea is that this creates something of like a halo effect where positive feelings, positive emotions uh, of the pandas are associated then with the entity that made that all possible, which is China. So the the idea is that through some type of mechanism that's poorly understood – emotional contagion or something like that, your feelings, your goodwill feelings about seeing the panda, knowing that they come from China will in some way lead to more positive feelings, uh, toward China. This is, this is easily studied by the way. I mean, if you wanted to, you could, you could sort of do like public opinion polls both before.
0: Well, this is my follow up question, right? So do we, do we have some study that shows like public opinion before the people walk through the panda exhibit (laughs) and then public opinion after the people leave the panda exhibit?
1: I would imagine somewhere somebody has done that study. I'm not familiar with it. And and for our listeners, if you can find it, uh, please send it to us. I would imagine that there is somebody has looked at this, Uh, if not in that particular context, sort of like an in the field experiment, um, maybe in a more controlled setting, like a lab where you look at pictures, like in a a survey experiment, you look at pictures of pandas. And then another condition, you look at pictures of like snails or something. I mean, that maybe would work with France. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you you look at pictures of like a uh you know a baseball or something like that and then they ask you you know what how do you feel about china having just seen these pictures of of pandas that i'm almost positive has been done again i don't know i don't know like who's done it i know the study i know they published but i would imagine somebody's looked at that if if that hasn't that's a good sort of dissertation topic for a future uh phd students that that type of thing is measurable, but then you all you always run into the same sort of problems. You know, it's like, well, how long do these effects last? If you go to the zoo tomorrow, you know, in two weeks, are you going to care about China because you saw a panda, you know, two weeks ago? Hard, hard to know. So there's all kinds of like methodological problems that you run into. But that that is definitely uh, a potentially like a question that can be can be answered. So, but even if you were to show that correlation, it's still not, or even a causation, it's still not clear what that mechanism is, right? It's like. I see pandas. I feel good. I know they come from China. Therefore, I somehow magically think that China is better than I previously thought, and that's going to make me more favorable towards them. Hard to kind of connect the dots as to how that actually works. And I think even even public diplomacy scholars who study this for a living, not just in panda diplomacy, but any type of you know sort of signal or image that's getting sent from a a country trying to improve its its image, has to grapple with this kind of like theoretical problem, which is. What is actually happening there, like what is happening to the individual that receives that image and has like a positive feeling? How is that translating into positive feelings for the sender of the image because that part's not exactly clear how that how that works and then how long does that last? Does that go for all types of different i mean is it, is it the case that if I have a, a positive view of China because of the panda experience, I'm more likely to travel to China, more likely to view to view their foreign policy as sympathetic, more likely to say like maybe Taiwan is not an island that we should support, like or defend. Who who knows, right? Because I don't think we clearly understand like what those positive kind of feelings from seeing the panda are actually doing with respect to our policy preferences.
0: Yeah, so I think there there are kind of two issues that you very nicely highlighted. So one is the mechanism by which we would have these positive feelings, right, um, or that we would attribute the positive feelings we have when seeing pandas, which everybody has because pandas are adorable. They're adorable. Adorable. But uh, yeah, like, what do we then feel good about China? So that that kind of aspect of it. And then whether that matters for anything we care about, I think is like the follow-up question, right? So like, even if we do, even if pandas are very effective at increasing the public opinion of people who see them. Or even people who don't, people who live like near a billboard advertising that there are pandas in the national zoo. So they say, oh, you know, nice of China to give us those pandas or to lend us those pandas for a million dollars a year. Uh, very nice of them. So now I feel good about China. Everyone in the greater D.C. area feels a little bit better about China. I- even if we grant that, there's still this question of how do you aggregate that up to some outcome in international affairs that uh, I would find interesting when it comes to like, you know. Peace and conflict and stuff like that, and I think we run into the same issue for pretty much every example that falls under this general rubric of what Joe Nye would call soft power. This idea of kind of cultural significance and cultural influence, or sports, right? And and you just finished up a conference on baseball diplomacy um, that you know I, we should get your take on at some at some point. But, I mean, you have the same problem when it comes to, like, how does baseball and sports affect international things that matter for someone who's more interested in, you know, War and Peace?
1: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think this is the major challenge. This is why a lot of people are skeptical of soft power. I mean, I, you know, in, in graduate school, you you read lots of, uh, lots of different um, sort of takedowns of soft power. People basically making the argument doesn't matter, matter at all. Um I mean I think there's a, there's a couple different uh ways to look at soft power and its effects. I mean so one one way is to think about the sort of obvious examples of uh soft power that seem to probably have an effect. So America's sort of cultural dominance in the 19th through 20th centuries with things like you know McDonald's and Microsoft and Google and globalization and Starbucks and you know all this kind of stuff. I think most people would say It seems likely that America, from a sort of attraction perspective, due to the the success of its brands and Hollywood and Nike and Michael Jordan and Taylor Swift, that's probably doing something. Um, Whether it's causing, you know, war and peace, I I don't know. But it probably is the case, just intuitively, that because we have, uh, you know, brands that people recognize, that there's more of an attraction, there's more of a pull. And that likely probably increases the amount of tourism to the United States probably increases the the sort of desire of people to want to you know emigrate to the United States. If you compare, I mean the people have made this this comparison actually quite a bit, the brands of China, let's say, versus the brands of of the US or the brands of Russia, from a sort of global perspective, it's it's not even close. I mean, I think, you know, even people in China would agree, it's the American brands have been, you know, way more successful in terms of, you know, being able to penetrate uh the the entire globe, uh certainly compared to, you know, China's brands or and China's making strides here, but Historically, they haven't had that sort of, you know, brand power. Russia certainly hasn't. They didn't have it during the Soviet Union. One of my, my favorite examples of, of, you know, sort of the soft power uh, of, of this is with that, that commercial, that pizza Hut commercial with Gorbachev uh, in, in the Soviet Union where Gorbachev was basically like eating at a pizza hut. And, you know, Soviets were like, you know, just horrified at, at seeing this. But like, it makes a point. Like, there's an attractive power. To, to brands brands, as attractive a power an image that comes from some successful brands. If your brands are not successful, it doesn't work. So I think that that if you th- if you think about it in those terms, it's probably doing some work. And then you can talk about Japanese pop pop culture. You can talk about Korean uh, K-pop. You know all this kind of stuff that that probably on the margins um, is doing something. What that something is very difficult to to sort of articulate. But I do think um, it's 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 something that. That a lot of people look at and say, I can't necessarily pin down what's going on here, but it does seem important and it does seem like, you know, there's, there's something that's beyond the hard power that we normally talk about uh, as being relevant occurring. The other, the other flip side of this, of course, is that there's, there's a lot of concern, particularly in the, in the West, in looking, about, in looking at China for what they're doing um, in terms of the, the sort of propagation of soft power through things like Confucius Institutes and things like, you know, trying to get Chinese, you know, messaging and, and uh, views about Taiwan and so forth, kind of through more Western discourse and, uh, you know, universities and things like that, because they, the intuition being, of course, that they have the same sort of idea. The United States is doing it through branding and, in in, in, you know, marketing and, and globalization. China's doing it through potentially, you know, institutes and trying to, you know, affect arguments that way. Both are sort of two sides of, a, of the same coin. And so you can't be skeptical of, let's say, Confucius Institutes and also make the argument that soft power doesn't matter when it comes to the United States. I think these things are, are uh, very much connected. But I completely grant you that showing any of this uh, in, a, in a sort of regression or showing how this works in a in a sort of causal framework becomes becomes very difficult.
0: I think there's also a distinction between soft power in terms of kind of cultural influence and... Propaganda and information campaigns. And I think some of this stuff that the US is concerned about coming from China and Russia is more in the realm of information operation. We used to talk about in the Cold War, you know, propaganda than it is soft power. Like, like Radio Free Europe, right, it is not so much soft power as it is. A influence operation by the United States as distinct from like movies that come from Hollywood, which are not produced necessarily with the intent of influencing anyone. Right. It just it's the the kind of cultural reach of Hollywood that has that effect if if there is an effect. And it's the cultural reach of K-pop that has that effect. But, uh, you know, thousands of Russians, Russian bots on Twitter seems different to me. Right. That's not necessarily like a cultural export of Russia so much as it is uh, an intentional attempt to influence.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and some of this stuff um, becomes kind of muddy because the, the, the observationally, you might say, well, let's, let's take a Confucius Institute, for example, which many people in the United States are very skeptical of. Well, China can say what these institutes are for uh, is the promotion of Chinese language and culture. And if you look at what they do, you can you can see them doing those things. Like, it's true. Like, if you go to Confucius Institute, you're, they're going to have promotion of language and culture. But it's also the case that people who are skeptical of them Will will say, like, the way that they're promoting language and culture does oftentimes look like some of these more information kind of campaigns that are very you know sort of state run, state centric, and they have a specific goal goal in mind. So if soft power is about trying to create sort of attraction, so the idea that Jonah had was like if I can make my state, my country uh, attractive for people to come visit, investment or whatever, that's a source of power that I have that is not in nuclear weapons or in conventional military arms or whatever. You know, presumably a Confucius Institute or a Radio Free Europe uh are are doing those things, right? So like you are basically you know trying to do that. It's just that those those very things that you're doing to promote US culture or Chinese culture can be used for very different purposes precisely because you are out there promoting a, a message and, and messages are information. If those information campaigns you know are used for state purposes, then it does start to look more like propaganda than, you know, what Joe and I would talk about as, as soft power. I, I completely agree. And I think trying to disentangle those two things, and, and frankly, this is probably why a lot of these uh, efforts are successful, because you can say, like, look, I'm just trying to promote U.S. culture, Chinese culture, Russian culture, or whatever, uh, but the way that you're doing that is often or can be, uh, uh, you know, sort of used to promote a particular type of, of information or have a particular signal or image, you know, sort of inculcated in a, in a society. I I agree. Yeah,
0: I, I think there's reason to be skeptical of government-propagated cultural programs, in, in no matter who they're from, right? I mean, like like a U.S. program to like spread U.S. values to other countries. I mean that that should raise eyebrows everywhere, too, right? But there's a there's a qualitative difference, I think, between that sort of thing, like a government kind of program to send a message abroad, and the Kind of natural spread of like cool stuff around the world, right? That that could be brands, economic brands like Starbucks and, and McDonald's. That can be uh, cultural cultural things like like movies and, and music, right? And and the spread there is a more organic thing, right? That's less about um, uh, an intentional decision by a government to send a message. And I think that that's that's a distinction that I think is useful in thinking about when things move from uh soft power into some more information operation side of the house.
1: Yeah. And, and this, um, this sort of debate and this distinction goes way back to the earliest days of, of public diplomacy. So if you go back and look at like the earliest of, of the public diplomacy literature, there was people making an argument, you know, that we have sort of gone back and forth on and Like there's no such thing as really public diplomacy. It's just propaganda. If a state is out there, projecting information or projecting an image that it wants other people to accept. That's, that's what propaganda is, you know, full stop, you know, that's just, that's, there's no, there's no difference between, you know, public diplomacy for sort of like nefarious good, you know, reasons or good reasons. You're trying to project something to other people to get them to believe that you are something. That's what we call propaganda. And then other people say, no, you know, it depends on sort of the the intention here. Like if you're trying to manipulate people, you know, if you're trying to influence them, Uh, for a particular like political goal that you have and you think that you can achieve that by sort of making misleading statements or, you know, in the case of like these, you know, Russian Twitter farms or whatever, you know, sort of sow discord by making things confusing and and ridiculous, that's clearly different than, you know, sports diplomacy or or you know public diplomacy where you're trying to project an image that's favorable to the United States, but it doesn't have that manipulation kind of aspect to it. So you can you can think about, you know, sort of the, the extent to which public diplomacy and propaganda might kind of overlap. Or might be different, but I agree with you. If we think about pandas, for example, uh, it's hard to see pandas as like propaganda, right? It's it's sort of a goodwill gesture. It's an image. It makes people feel warm and fuzzy. That's probably not propaganda. Whereas if you have you know something like you know a, a radio show that's projected across the world, where you're talking about politics and you're trying to make you know claims about democracy, you know that starts to get look a little bit more like propaganda. And reasonable people can disagree about where that line is. Uh, but I think with the pandas i think we're we're safe that it's not China don't think it's trying to to do pro- propaganda through the panda exchanges,
0: yeah, but it's interesting that like people are all up in arms about China revoking their pandas uh, you know that yeah. they they're telling us this is part of a deliberate attempt to to uh send a message to the united states or or something like that, but people aren't angry when the pandas come right like like this no. isn't like a yeah like which they are about the Confucius Institute sometimes right. It, there's there's a little bit of a contradiction here that like the government see the government of China sees this as like some way to sow influence in the world and so they're revoking it because there's a bad relations between the U S and and China but yet we're not so concerned about that influence that we're going to reject the pandas if they're offered to us so <laughs> you
1: know and if this was just all a grand strategy that China has it, it, it's brilliant right it's like we're going to find the cutest animal that's basically ever existed. We're going to we're going to say these are China like the, this. This is the national symbol of China. Like you look at this panda, you're going to feel good. You're going to think of China. That's only going to have good things, uh, uh, you know, result from it for, for China's perspective. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. If it's just sort of like by accident, you know, less brilliant. But it's, it's kind of interesting. Like if there's I really hope that there was a, somebody in China somewhere. Like, has this, like, grand strategy, like, written down. They're like, I, you know, this is, this is what we're going to do. This is the way that we're going to take over the world. We're going to do this through pandas. I really kind of hope that exists.
0: Yeah, I'm usually skeptical of grand strategy, but this would be – this is a grand strategy I can get behind. You know, the panda-panda
1: strategy. And, and what's the United States doing? Like, what, where is our – what's our equivalent of the panda?
0: Well, but the real, the real question, Marcus, is, is what is Australia doing? Because when you think of Australia, right. you think
1: kangaroos. No, I think koala bears, which are marsupials.
0: You don't, though. People don't. The the koala is a secondary symbol of Australia to the kangaroo. I think that's very, very clear.
1: That's true. Yeah, what is Australia doing? It's a great question.
0: I'm now Googling
1: Australia. Well, they also have the boomerang. That's a good symbol. The,
0: The Australian men's soccer team, on the logo of the soccer team, you see a kangaroo. You see an emu. I want to say that's an email, a large, very large bird. You do not see a koala, but clearly the koala is the cutest of the animals that they could choose from, and yet someone has made a decision that they want to be uh, they want to be more associated with the kangaroo than the. Than
1: Maybe it's because kangaroos, I think, kind of. They got this sort of cuteness combined with a kind of edge to them. Because kangaroos box, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. They, they do the punching, yeah.
1: And, and so they can be mean. So, so Australia's kind of saying, they're signaling, like, we're nice, we're cute, but we could also fight if we have to.
0: Mm.
1: I, I mean, we really milked this panda thing to death, <laughs> I think.
0: They <laughs> got nothing else. This is, it's, it's pandemonium on it's the pandemonium. podcast today. Yeah,
1: yeah. and possibilities.
0: Well, Marcus... <laughs> <laughs> we've done it again that was
1: a i will say professor capital that was a (laughs) wide-ranging discussion of pandas it might be the longest discussion of panda diplomacy that's ever taken place
0: It's actually a fairly narrow discussion now that i look back on it but we we did what we needed to do we covered the panda uh,
1: we covered a lot of different aspects of pandas and panda diplomacy and the the ins and outs um and i I think the end of you know at the end of the day like the, the the reason i just want to get back to where i started like they're just adorable creatures, and so they're if nothing adorable. else, you could be very skeptical about panda diplomacy. No one can can be skeptical of the pandas' sort of natural attraction.
0: No, and I I mean I'm going to miss the pandas I, when when they're gone, and I hope that that China will send more.
1: I don't I don't love zoos as a concept. So so when I see it's not I don't know where the pandas are going to end up uh, in China if they're going to be on some type of like really you know, big field. That's what I hope happens with like lots of trees and bamboo and stuff like that. I get a little depressed when I go to a zoo and I see animals in basically in cages. And so I I have sort of like, I'm torn on this one because I do like looking at pandas because they're adorable, but I also don't like seeing them. And this is not an affront to the people at the, 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 the national zoo. I know they do a great job. As far as zoos go, it's great. And they're very, they treat the animals really well. But just the whole idea of sort of like animals like that in captivity, I don't
0: love. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's there's a trade off there because it's important to recognize the the conservation work that that many zoos do, and that is made possible by the, the fact that there is right, and the fact that people come to see the animals, and the importance that that plays in kind of sensitizing new generations of people about the the natural uh, beauty of the world and the importance of these of these animals in our ecosystems.
1: I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Marcus, thanks for joining me today. For those listening who have questions about pandas, about, uh, anything else going on in the world, or want to point out somewhere where professor Holmes was wrong about something. And I think you have a lot to choose from in this particular episode, please send us a note at cheap pod at com or leave us a voicemail at speakpipe.com com slash cheap talk. I want to, uh, Thank everyone who requested the panda talk. So we've we've done it. We can check that box, and we can we can talk about other things. And Marcus,
1: thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Anytime you want to talk about pandas or other marsupials, no, the koalas are marsupials. Any type of bear you want to talk about, we can discuss. Grizzly, brown, black, great koala. (laughs) See you next week. You're sick. Mm -hmm. Why? What's wrong with you? What's your ailment? I mean, cold.
0: Yeah, I got some kind of a cold...
1: Hey, you sound terrible, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Last
0: time you said I sounded fine.
1: <laughs> oh, well, you're worse now. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I was visiting my, uh, my in-laws in Maryland, and they live near the Y River, so, uh, which has IR significance. There are some kind of accords that are named after the Y River. I don't know if you're aware of that.
1: The Y? Like, W-H-Y or just Y?
0: W-Y-E, isn't it? The Y River?
1: Okay. Interesting.
0: I went to go kayaking with my son. And so he they have this dock and it's fairly high above the water. Okay, But there's there's like a ladder. So we toss the kayak in and Henry gets in the kayak, you know. Right. And he's fine. I kind of help steady the kayak while he gets in. And then I, I drop my kayak in and I'm trying to hold onto the ladder and to keep the kayak steady. And I go to step that last step into the kayak and... I mis misjudge it, and the the kayak flips over, and I'm in the, you know, in the in the in the Y River. So I, you know, I wasn't intending to like, swim in the river. I was just intending to kayak, and I'm like wearing all my clothes, shoes, and my phone, and wallet, and keys, and like, oh, your phone? Yeah, oh. yeah. Because I was well, I have a I have a waterproof phone. It's an iPhone, so it's, it was okay. But
1: how deep is this Y River?
0: Well, where I fell into the Y
1: River, not very deep. I see.
0: I think, I think it is deep in places, but, but not right where I was. But so anyway, I pull myself out and come in and try, it's uh, the process of decontaminating because I don't think, I don't think this is a river that you want to swim in. And the first thing I see is um, my wife's grandmother who, who's there greeting me at the door. And the first thing she says is you're going to catch pneumonia. From- <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> and I'm you, did. Soaking you wet, did, you know, yeah. so that's, and her, her prediction came true because I'm not feeling great. So. I'm not sure these the two things are related.
1: Well, I think it's I, it's probably not pneumonia. I think you probably have a cold.
0: Oh, well, that's all I have. <laughs> that's not, a good story. Yeah, that's good. All, that killed
1: um, ten minutes of the podcast. That's good. Yeah. Yeah.